Hi everybody, I'm Karen Hartglass, and this is It's All About Food. My guest today is Robert Grillo. Let me tell you a little bit about him. As an activist for all species, including the human ones, Robert Grillo has played the role of thought leader as well as frontline activist, leading campaigns, large-scale protests, and other creative actions since 2012. He has learned as much from academia as he has from the streets, from first-hand experience in grassroots activism. Most figures involved in social change are either academics on the theory side or activists on the practice side. Rarely do you find those who engage equally in both the theory and application, providing a unique perspective that bridges the gap between the two important sides of every moment. Robert Grillo is also the founder and director of Free From Harm, a nonprofit dedicated to advancing a plant-based food system and challenging the dominance of animal agriculture since 2009. He founded Slaughter Free Network in 2018 with the intent of building a powerful grassroots base and carrying out dramatic and innovative actions to capture the attention of media, public, and food industry power holders. And I just want to add that Robert Grillo is one of the nicest people on the planet. Our program today is titled Playing the Outside Game to Grow Our Movement. Thanks for joining me. Here's my interview with Robert Grillo. Robert Grillo, it is so good to see you and to talk with you once again. It's been a while. It's long overdue. I agree. And I'm so glad you're on the planet. I like to say... This is a difficult planet to live on. It's not that I enjoy saying it. I just say it often. This is a difficult planet to live on. And with all the yeah. challenges that we have, I'm glad that you're out there doing everything that you can. Right. To make things a little bit better. That's what makes life live worth living, I think, is that, you know, the, the special people in your circle and your community um, with all the this stuff going on that you know you have this group of people that you love and and you know share time with so that's what keeps us sane i think that's what keeps us sane in this insane world yeah. and every week i say it late lately i've been saying it all the time this is an insane world we live in insanity otherwise all the horrible things that are happening wouldn't be happening if we weren't insane and I like to think a few of us are not. And I also like to think that there's potential to bring sanity to the insane. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but let's stay positive. Okay. Robert, you're awesome. And you're doing all kinds of wonderful work. And that's what we want to talk about today, especially a recent event that you had. So I'm going to leave it to you to tell us what's been happening. Thank you. Yeah. First, I, I just love, I wanted to ask you, are all those books behind you, all, are those all yours? Yeah, so directly behind me, this section, now nobody can see because it's audio, there's about two, 300 vegan cookbooks there. Wow. And then next to it in the next section are opera and musical theater scores. That's and cool. I, and I'd like to think that I've sung at least one piece in each of those books. Really? If not more. Yeah. Anyway. Definitely. And I've I tried, there. I don't like to have stuff. Stuff make gives me anxiety. 
And I'm hearing about friends of mine who have so much stuff and for one reason or another and have to figure out ways to downsize. And not too long ago, I gave away about 300 books. I do this podcast, publishers send me books, I read them. You end up collecting books. Now I tend to request PDFs because they don't take up room on my shelf. And I can search on PDF. So I, I like them. I mean, I like the feel of books. I like reading books when I'm reading books for myself and no one else. Uh, but the, but these books behind me that you see, it's going to be very difficult to part with any of them if I have to. So Yeah, because everything kind of has a some kind of, it's tied to some special thing, experience right. or something. Right. Yeah. I mean, the music, I'm not done singing, so they're not going anywhere. And the cookbooks, I'm not done cooking, so they're not going anywhere. (laughs) Far from it. Yeah. So that's the answer to my question. Yeah, that's good. That's my my answer to your question. Yeah. And then before we get into the serious stuff, I see you've got some friends behind you. Do you want to talk about the the green people behind you yeah you know I, I guess I've always had some house plants like grow you know just kind of like everybody else probably has a couple here and there that they kind of half-heartedly take care of you know exactly and some die in us and some don't make it but I guess I don't know if it was like in, during the pandemic I guess maybe uh, that I started like a lot of people getting more into uh, plants and I just found myself not not buying a lot of plants, but just like propagating, experimenting with cuttings and people giving me stuff and my moving my mother out of her house and mm. all of a sudden finding that I have all of her plants. <laughs> and, it's like, and then this is what happens. But um, I'm not one of those consumers of plants that has to get like the latest uh, philodendron or, you know, something fashionable or, or, you know, popular for collectors. I'm not like that. Um, I don't care about variety so much as, I mean, I do love philodendrons, but I don't care so much about um, the species and how rare it is or anything like that. If it's beautiful and there's, you know, it feels good to have it around, that's what's important to me. And that's what's important to you overall, not just with plants, right? You don't discriminate. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking how important plants are, especially when we live inside. And especially as the air is becoming more and more polluted. These plants are here to help us. So it's good to have a lot of green around you, creating oxygen for you to breathe, good oxygen. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a definite perk, you know, for indoor air quality for sure. Right. I have an air doctor, one of these HEPA filter things, which I haven't used yet. I'm waiting for the next burning disaster. But plants help too. Yeah. They do. They're a lot less expensive. (laughs) They can yeah. If you don't buy the collector stuff, exactly. (laughs) They are expensive. And they do require a lot of care. And the last thing I want to add to that is I grew some things on the terrace this summer, just some herbs and things. And I invested in a very inexpensive timer irrigation system that really helped because 
I I don't think about taking care of them all the time. And I like to think they're out in the wild taking care of themselves, but they need to be watered. And that really helped. Yeah, right. I have a morning routine where I go around and I, I well, I make a cup of coffee and I go around and I, I look to see who needs some attention. <laughs> and inevitably, there's there's some that really need it. But every morning, I kind of just, I do my tour and try to, you know, give a little love and attention before I start my day. Okay, now let's start this podcast and get to the, quote, meat of things. I just want people to know Robert Grillo is one of the nicest people on the planet. Okay. Well, that's very sweet of you. To well, say. It's, I only speak the truth. You were involved in an event recently, and I want to hear about that, and I want to hear about a lot of other things. But let's start with that. Can you yeah. tell me about how it got started, what happened, and what's the conclusion? So it all started in 2019. If we go back, if we provide the context for this whole Fair Life milk brand uh, debacle, um, actually, it's a good thing for for our movement because uh, Animal Recovery Mission, as you probably saw with all the news coverage, did an investigation and then they did a press conference in Chicago, which is where Fairlife's headquarters are. And uh, Richard Quoto Kudo, otherwise known as Kudo, um, did the press conference, speaks very eloquently. Um, and his group did an investigation at one of the farm suppliers in Indiana for Fairlife. <clears throat> And, you know, it was really impressive, the amount of media attention on this. I haven't seen anything like it for an investigation of this kind for, in a long time. And and then uh, Richard contact, I, I think it was Richard who reached out to me and said, hey, um, are, are you guys thinking of doing protests? Do you have any interest in like, and I said, yeah, let's do it. So then... Other people got involved, other kind of leaders in our movement who do lots of good protest work, got involved, people in L.A. and Atlanta, New York, Chicago. And we staged protests because um, so Fairlife is owned by Coca-Cola. And in 2019, it was half owned by Coca-Cola mm. and their headquarters are in Atlanta. So we had a group in Atlanta staging protests at their headquarters. Fairlife's headquarters are in Chicago. And New York uh, and L.A., I can't remember exactly what their angle was, but we all got involved. And it was great because um, we got a lot of media attention at our protests. And um, I, in fact, I had like mics pointed in my face from like all the major oh news networks. I was like, OK. And um I felt like it was a good moment. Like we were able to speak about not just um, what the, 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 the narrative that fair, we were able to debunk the, the fair life narrative that this was just a few bad apples and that they just needed to correct things and things would go back to normal and be fine. What we I just want to I just want to interject here and say that's the standard narrative of all giant animal agriculture businesses. When somebody finds out something bad they're doing, they all say, "Yeah, it's just a bad place here, and we're taking care of it. We don't support that." Absolutely, they distance themselves. Yeah, and 
even in the name itself, if you think about the name Fair Life, it's embedded in the culture of the industry. Uh, to their their goal is to uh, to try to really make us believe that that this is a good life for animals that they provide and that they care so much about them. Even these large corporate brands, uh, especially them, maybe because they're the ones that do the most damage. So anyway, um, so this all went down in 2019. It was all very good for everyone involved. They got lots of media attention. We were very happy to see the public's attention uh, on fair. Everybody knows about the fair. If you ask pretty much anybody I've asked, they they know about the 2019 Fair Life investigation and all the media frenzy out over it. Fast forward four years later, I got a, another call from Richard saying, we're going to release an investigation again. And I just wanted to make you aware of it. And then um, he did another press conference um, a few months ago in Chicago again, saying that they went back to the same farm four years later. And this was after um, a lot of stuff went down in 2019 as a result of their investigation. For one thing, the, the very powerful dairy family in Indiana, the McCloskey family, sold their 50% share to Coca-Cola. So now Fairlife is a wholly owned subsidiary of Coca-Cola at this point. The other things that happened is certain people were fired that were, you know, abuse, uh, uh, charged with abuse. And uh, Coca-Cola made all of these promises that things would be completely different, that the problem would be completely corrected. And there was a class action lawsuit against Coca-Cola that was moving ahead. And um, they were bound to certain, my understanding is that Coca-Cola and Fairlife were bound to certain uh, rules not to violate their class action lawsuit because the consequences for that are very, very serious mm. in courts, apparently. I'm not a lawyer, but this is what I've kind of been told. So fast forward to 2023, Richard comes back and tells the press, hey, uh, nothing's changed. In fact, things may have actually gotten much worse. One of the worst things we saw was um, because when a downer cow can't get up and they, she's in the middle of a, of a warehouse where they need to be able to get through, how do they move this animal, this 1,000 or 1,500 pound animal that can't get up? Well, they, they have to use a bulldozer. But mm -hmm. in this case, it was so vicious um, that they they used a bulldozer at a, apparently 25 miles an hour to move this animal. So those are just some of the kind of things that they found. And in any case, the interesting thing that happened this time was that Coca-Cola completely denied that this farm that was investigated by ARM was actually one of their suppliers because they said they cut ties with them after the first 2019 incident. But, and, and this, this is according to ARM, they have it on record from this farm's manager and from uh, following the trucks to the Fairlife Distribution Center that in fact, this farm supplies exclusively to Fairlife. So, but what happened was, is it threw off the media because Coca-Cola told the reporters, uh, 
this isn't our farm. You can't publish this story. This is this is not our supplier. So um, no media coverage, very, very little at all. Doing good media work anymore, mainstream media. Why do they just believe them and don't follow the trail? Yeah, right. Uh, they were scared. They were spooked. Wow. I think they were probably spooked by Coca-Cola's attorneys because they kind of put a chill on the story. So since then, we we you know we decided not to do the that we had planned at Fair Life because of all this. Because if the media wasn't going to show up, we thought, well, maybe this isn't the best time we're not going to be able to leverage the buzz that the media could lend to this so we held off and we waited and we looked for opportunities and something came up in new york and it was i don't know how to describe this uh care is a an organization that claims to you know fight world hunger uh has quite an endowment apparently um not sure how much but millions and millions of dollars and uh, they had this big award ceremony. They can do an awards. They can afford to do, let's put it this way. They can afford to do an awards ceremony at the Siegfried, Siegfried Ballroom in Midtown. Right. Uh, nothing in Midtown is cheap. Nothing in Midtown is cheap. <laughs> and the, the starting uh, price for tickets is $1,500 a person, which probably by New York standards isn't incredible. But in any case, um, we, we found that Coca-Cola executives, including the CEO, James Quincy, were going to give themselves awards for being such great stewards of world poverty. Wow. And we just thought, oh, this is, this is brilliant. Yeah, we need to be there. So um, long story short, we were there and we, we had a um, group of activists that got on stage and disrupted the the narrative basically changed the change the narrative instead of oh how wonderful coca cola is and their top executives um we changed the the station and turned it on the abuse at, at their fair life brand and you know how terrible that is not just for animals but also for world hunger because if you're feeding cows instead of humans you got a public relations problem so that was our event. And it was really pulled off great, um, considering that Bill Clinton was there, along with his Secret Service staff, which made it a lot more difficult for activists to get in. But they managed to get through security ch checkpoints and Secret Service, and they were on stage for a while. And we got the attention of very powerful people in the audience that may not have known anything about fair exactly. life or the abuse of the abuse of the dairy industry. I have so many questions. So you said there was the Bill Clinton security there. How, what was the strategy? How did you get in? Um, so there, we had a person in the room that was ticketed and had a seat and was able to, um, the, first of all, the doors were open to the ballroom. The, the doors that, the way the ballroom's designed is um, you enter through the main doors and you you to, to get to the stage is a very long stretch, but there's also side doors. So they were able to get into one of the side doors and very that cool. was closest to the stage. Also farthest from the doors that they would have to get them out from because you have to use those doors all the way at the other end of the ballroom. 
to get them down the stairs and out of the building. So that's a really long stretch. And we thought, great, because that's more time that we get to be in the room. I, I'm just thinking of crazy things I watch on Netflix, like Lupin. I don't know if you've seen Lupin, but he's kind of like a Robin Hood character, steals from the rich, and he's trying to um, take revenge on something that happened to his father a long time ago. It's based on a fictional character, but it's really fun. Right. You yeah. always see these big events and the, these big galas where he's going through the back staircases and he's got this whole thing planned out. But was what were the risks that the activists took in being there? Could they have been arrested or anything like that? Very unlikely. Um, usually in these cases where we're in a hotel at a conference or some kind of fancy banquet room, um, hotels and other places are technically, they are private property, but they're open to the public. Hmm. And uh, so in in most cases, uh, you know, security will ask you to leave and you'll slowly move. You'll slow, you know, you'll try to maximize your time. Uh, but they can't make arrests, of course. Police can, can. what what would typically happen is if, if the police did get there, which, you know, New York police, I don't know. I don't know if they're anything like Chicago police, but they might take 15, 30, 45 minutes to show up, right? <laughs> so by the time they get there, yeah, are over. But if, if they do get there, the most likely scenario is they'll say, hey, these people have asked you to leave and now we're asking you to leave. And if, you know, you have a chance to leave now, if you don't, we can charge you with disorderly conduct. Right. So you, you were able to get your complete message. How much about how much time did you have to talk to the audience? And and were they like respectful and listening to you or it was noisy and chaotic? Then the audience reaction was somewhat funny because um, people, well, it was towards the end of the night, but still, even still, it was not far, it was far from over. But uh, when when the action started, the audience started getting up and moving around and getting kind of being kind of nervous. Like it was a bit chaotic of a scene. And many people started leaving when that happened. Um, so, uh, but yeah, it was, it was strange the way, you know, it almost made us think that, that Coca-Cola knew or somehow got tipped off that maybe something like this happened. So they waited until the very end of the night to have their, awards mm. ceremony which was supposed to start at eight o'clock um so that but there was still a full house of, you know still a full house of people in the room okay so i assume there was some kind of media there what yeah. was the reaction did you get any press did you get some feedback not anything but the social media uh <clears throat> exposure that we generated and other other groups helped us generate um, we couldn't tip off the media in advance because we don't. Sure. We couldn't really confide in them. Um, but even after the fact, um, our PR person wasn't able to get the media's attention. There was a little bit of a miscommunication as far as the urgency of like this needs to kind of. And unfortunately, it was a a third. Well. It was a Thursday night. The press release didn't go out until later in fr Friday afternoon, which means they're not going to see it, which means then there's the weekend. 
And then by the time Monday comes, it's it's not a story anymore for them to consider. So the timing, unfortunately, with the press release didn't work too well. Otherwise, I think we could have gotten some media. I'm remembering we went to a tennis match at the U.S. Open this summer, and there was a there were three, I think, three climate activists that protested, and one of them glued them their feet to the floor, and we had to wait 45 minutes before that activity had dissipated, and they got the activists out of there, and. Mm. You know, I believe we're doing horrible things to the climate. So I would I support activists. And I was thinking to myself, I don't know if this is, you know, the best thing and I don't know what they accomplished. But there was plenty of press there because it was a major match. So they did get articles in major newspapers. I read about it in The New York Times. They got some attention. Did it do anything? I don't know. Right. <laughs> that's that's the problem. How do we get people to move? So. I I filled out petitions for care, plenty of them. You know, they're really good at petitions, right? Yeah. How how are they reacting? Or is there something that we can do to get to them or get to Coca-Cola? The whole thing is quite obscene. Yeah. So just to kind of respond to one of your earlier points first, um, no one particular action in itself is going to move the needle, but the collective activities uh, are what should, you know, bring about what what we want is a trigger event. We want something that um, that really moves the needle, that that galvanizes people, because you know it's like a George Floyd incident. It's a it's a thing that just galvanizes a ton of people and who want to take action against a, a terrible injustice. And so we, I don't think as a movement have found that trigger event. Um, maybe we have in a, on smaller scales, but nothing that has really gotten to, into the public's mind and said, wow, we really have to do something about this. Um, so I'd say that I think every action, though, has a collective effect in the public's consciousness. And um, so if they were at a tennis game and they were subjected to this kind of situation and then they went home and they heard something on the news about climate change. So all of these things collectively increased the people's consciousness. Acts of like this are never popular and aren't really intended um, to be popular because it's more fundamental than that. It's about getting people to even think about uh, mm -hmm. the topic. And then once you get that kind of attention on it, then you have them maybe thinking more deeply about it. Then you can start, you know, a different dialogue. But um, it's necessary to get people's attention on it. And uh, that's what these kind of outside, we call them outside game actions. We're not playing the inside game. We're not playing by the rules of the system because we think the system is too corrupt and it won't change meaningfully by playing by their rules, which are actually uh, set up to have us fail because we're not 
the power holders. They are, and they don't want to. They don't want to give up that power to change things. So we have to do outside game and inside game uh, maneuvers to change the system. What's especially disturbing is there are numerous nonprofit organizations that have a mission that many people can support. And it has to do with doing good on the planet. Now we have our animal related nonprofits. We have our environment related nonprofits and people and nonprofits that are working to against food insecurity. There are numerous ones. And Unfortunately, we see this pattern where the ones that get more successful and start to get more donors get corrupted by the money that they're receiving. So they do a certain amount of good, but they can't entirely tell the whole truth because they're getting donors now that are doing things that are wrong and they can't speak out against those donors. And we have... Uh, people like Kip Anderson and Keegan Kuhn, who have done some documentaries like Cowspiracy and What the Health and Seaspiracy, and they have a new one. Well, Kip has a new one called Christspiracy coming out. And they often show these, well, at least in Cowspiracy, I remember, they showed these nonprofits, the ones that we believe are doing good, and how they're they're hypocrites because they have donors that are doing terrible things and they cannot tell the, the whole truth because of that and care is an organization right that we all think they're doing good things and yet they're awarding people that are doing bad things and i think that's just new human nature unfortunately <laughs> i want to believe robert that if you became very very wealthy and your organizations became very popular you'd still stay committed to the path and that it couldn't corrupt you well that raises a great point which is that you know, money doesn't buy change. Money doesn't make change. People-led grassroots movements make change. They are the catalyst for change. Uh, and they don't take a lot of money. They take volunteerism. They take people that are disenfranchised who are um, very upset with the current state of things and are willing to invest their time and energy and the great leaders of the different great movements that, that we've seen past and present are people that know how to galvanize public support, create this moral crisis that gets people to want to act, to join the movement <clears throat> on some level. Now, these large nonprofits, um, I think we can look at this as on a, on a more general level, that special interests, like you, you, you know, you suggested, special interests corrupt best intentions. Whether it's nonprofit executives, whether it's public officials, whether it's leading investors, I, I don't care who it is. Um, but it's most paradoxical and disturbing, I guess, when it's nonprofits because you expect that they have a certain mission and. They're not going to allow these special interests to dictate to them how they're going to carry out their work. Uh, so I, it's a struggle for movements, all movements that that have both sides of this. They have a grassroots side that is about people power and leveraging people power from the outside to 
pressure on the power holders of the system. And on the other side, uh, the, the, um, the, the moderate reformist side of the movement that says, well, it's an imperfect system, but we think we can work within these the rules to really make some kinds of kind, kind of meaningful change. The problem with that side for me is they're getting, they're using, where is all this money going? I I just don't, I don't understand it because like there, there are, there are funding sources like the open philanthropy project, which has just for animal welfare causes already distributed $90 million. Where is that money going? Right. Did it go to, to paper lobbyists and lawyers and um, campaign donations for politicians so that we could get Prop 2 passed in California? Where does this mo- millions of dollars go? Because grassroots movements can change things without um, requiring that kind of money. The other interesting thing I just want in this context, I want to point out is that the Gallup poll now has come through again saying that lower income people are twice as likely to be vegetarian, which says that they're probably twice as likely to be sympathetic to our cause and want to join our movement. So why aren't we appealing to those everyday working people instead of um, these big, you know, money people? Because if money, again, if money was really this, the catalyst for change, we would have seen animal liberation. There's been $90 million injected into this movement. Yeah. What has it done? That's my question. It's a good question. I support the grassroots and I agree with you. And I'm so glad that you brought all of this up, that that's where the change is made and that money doesn't make change. But I just want to point out just two little things I noticed recently in my environment here to show that people are getting the message, change won't happen as fast as we want. But I ride the subway, an organic valley that makes dairy products organic. They have a big campaign. They have all these panels in the subway saying how sustainable and they use very vague language. And of course, they show the images of the cartoon green prairies with animals grazing happily. And they want to give you this impression that they're a wonderful company. They're, but they're doing it because they're, the message is getting out that they're not. And even if dairy is organic, they're still cruel and exploitive to animals and probably people too. That was one thing. Then another thing was I was scrolling on Facebook or somewhere, and I saw an advertisement for Land's End and some kind of coat with, I forgot the adjective they use, but for down, but it it made it sound like maybe it wasn't real down or something. So I clicked and I was researching and reading, and they had all these vague terms, how they didn't believe in the barbaric practice of obtaining down and they work with allied down. And I went to see allied down and they have more vague terms about their procedures. And you know, it's all bullshit and they're still exploiting animals, but they're starting to see a need to address the concerns that people are having. So I take that as a good sign, even though it's sad. 
I agree. I would call that damage control because they feel like they have to. Yeah. Fair life is a, to go back to fair, the fair life example is a perfect example. If you look at their, their promotional content now, their videos and their website and marketing stuff, the emphasis on animal welfare and husbandry, you know, and the concern for animals is repeatedly in the messaging it's more so now than ever because it's part of the damage control that they feel that they think they have to do um but and, and in fair life's case sadly if sales are any indication of success mark so they are a successful milk brand and they're building a 650 million dollar plant in near rochester new york and not only that the state of new york is giving them a 67 million dollar credit um, the levels of wrong here, yeah, they're succeeding. In other words, is what I'm saying. Uh, and that's a different matter from saying, yeah, the public feels like concerned. So yeah, they have to do all this marketing to, to do the damage control. So yeah, that, that's a good sign. I agree. But at the same time, I, I see the, 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 the industry succeeding in other ways and we're not seeing on the power holders enough. That's that to me is the big problem. Um, we're focusing on the end users, which is they're not the powerful people. These people that are making these brands successful, we're, we're letting them off the hook. We're not holding them accountable. And until we start doing this in a collective, um, consistent way, orchestrated way, we're not going to see a huge change. I think that's my belief. I don't know if you have the answer to this, but you mentioned earlier that there was a class action suit against Coca-Cola for doing these egregious things with their their suppliers or that they were in violation of many things. Mm -hmm. And that if they violated some of the agreements in the class action, there would be major penalties. So you implied that they did violate what they weren't supposed to. And is anyone going after them? Is there... Yeah, I believe so. Right, yeah. I um, And uh, the, the information I have is just what I've seen from ARM in terms of like a class action lawsuit. And ARM stands uh, for? Animal Recovery Mission. Thank you. Uh, so their website and just sources like, you know, their Facebook posts and stuff, but um, all public information. As far as like uh, whether or not they'll, I, I, I don't know the specifics of like what they'll do in response to this new investigation but i believe that yeah the litigation is going to be ongoing the thing about litigation is it's an inside game move and it takes years and a lot of money right so what can we do in the meantime as everyday working people can we afford to hire attorneys can we afford to be in part of that litigation proceeding no but there's a lot of other things that we can do to put pressure to support that legal effort and that's what, where we come in. So what can we do? We can disrupt a Coca-Cola Gala Award. Uh, we can get in front of these key decision makers at Fairlife and Coca-Cola and demand changes and embarrass them in front of their peers and say, until you make these changes, you, you'll have to deal with us. We're not going away. And you can't ignore us. You can ignore our hundreds of emails from our supporters. You can or ignore our phone calls. 
but you can't ignore us at your events. And Are you saying that if we write or send emails or make phone calls, that doesn't hold a lot of weight or we should be doing everything? Well, we should be doing everything. And, and there's an escalation strategy, right? So like we start out with diplomacy and we start out with efforts to have a closed door meeting with these powerful people, but they're not going to grant it to us. Mm-hmm. We can ask uh, supporters to contact them. And sure, that might make a somewhat of an impact. It might make them aware that, oh, there's a campaign, there's a, or a coordinated effort to try to get us to make this change. And that might be helpful. Um, but my belief is ultimately what changes things is when we impose a cost on the, the a powerful institution or person. It's either a reputational cost or an economic cost, or ideally both. Because if we can hit them on both, it make, gives them even more of an incentive to meet the demand that we're looking for. I think the economic cost is the biggest thing. And reputational cost is what affects economic costs, right? It's money. And you just pointed out how much they spend on trying to do damage control. Yeah. Right? So that's to try to preserve and protect their, their reputation and the public's trust. <laughs> it's not easy and it's difficult and it's frustrating and anything yeah, we can do, you know, and, and people, people like to drink their sodas and yeah. the Coca-Cola company, even if it's not about exploiting animals, they're exploiting people left and right. I mean, there've been so many stories about how they go in and they take the water source from an area that needs water and they use it to make their beverages and, and add with added value. Right. It's a terrible company. Yeah. It's just a terrible company. So if you like Coke and Diet Coke, please stop drinking them. Stop supporting <laughs> this company. Yeah. Robert, what else are you doing? Tell us about your doing your organizations well, and sure. And what we can so do. So we're we're focusing on kind of the stuff that I was just telling you about, like finding ways, creative, bold actions, ways of, of getting in front of powerful people in our food system as a path to change, to changing the food system. And the logic of that is be, that because many of these decisions about what food is going to be available, to whom, at what cost, how accessible it will it be, all of those kinds of decisions are not made by consumers. They are made by executives in closed door meetings with no public input whatsoever. So our, we believe that the, the change has to come from them and or from government officials who support them that we put pressure on and say, you can't have these corrupt ties with these people. And if you continue to do it, we're gonna expose it. It's gonna become a public relations debacle for you. So that's the that's the pressure point that we're focusing on, where a lot of our movement is focusing on consumers. We're fo focusing on trying to change dominant institutions. And what we're doing to assist that is um, monthly workshops that give that create grassroots leaders. In short, they give them the skills, the support, the community that they need to go out into the world and really inspire uh, more people to join our movement because they're doing bold actions, because they speak well, they have wonderful stories to tell and they're charismatic 
and they know how to get public attention. There's a science to this that we can leverage that it's a science, but it's also just general skills, uh, a different set of skills that our movement isn't really training people in. Our movement is, is so professionalized all it has to offer is professional advocacy skills, how to be a veterinarian, how to be an attorney, how to be a nutritionist, which are all important things to have in society. But a grassroots movement is different and it requires a completely different set of skills. And everyday people can take take these roles on. They can become leaders. And that's the beauty of it. So you have these monthly events. They're live, but they're also streamed. So anyone anywhere can take advantage of them. Yeah, we do Zoom them. And we also do live uh, live events. Okay. So and we can find out about these where? Uh, at, at, uh, well, we have a mailing list. Um, go to slaughterfreenetwork.org and sign up and you'll receive um, notices of, of how to register and when the meetings and other events take place. Slaughterfreenetwork.org. Okay, we'll include that link on this podcast. I just want to talk about donations and charitable giving for a moment because the end of the year is coming and there's a big push by many nonprofit organizations as well as for-profit organizations that are looking for funding and thanksgiving we have giving tuesday and then we have the big winter holidays coming up and this is the time when people realize oh i have to do my charitable giving because it's a good thing but also i want my tax write-off right and then we have the organizations that rate charitable organizations to tell you if they're legit or if they're effective in doing their work. And I can't say that I have total trust in these, in the algorithms that they use to judge organizations. And if you're an organization that brings in a lot of money and you have a big staff you can craft your narrative. You can craft your financials so that you look very positive in the organizations for the companies that are rating you so that you get a good rating, right? And then, as we mentioned before, money doesn't really make change. It's the grassroots that make change. So I want to I qualify that money doesn't make change statement. Your money... Yeah in my opinion, can be more effective by supporting the small, grassroots, hardworking organizations that are so desperately in need of so many things to get the work done. And they're far more efficient in their work. So I'm promoting you, Robert Grillo, and the work that you're doing. And, you know, I'm going to do a self-promotion here for the work that we do at Responsibility and Living in this podcast, it's all about food. We tend to like to promote people that are doing the work that we really believe in. And that's that. You want to add to that, Robert? I'd love to make a few quick points. Um, one thing that comes to mind is a, a report that came out recently called Dollar and Descent, which basically showed that only 3% of all donations go to grassroots movements in human rights or animal rights or any social welfare. The 97% goes to professional advocacy organizations that are already raking in millions. 
And the same is true in our movement as others. And so here's the thing about um, these charity, I'll say something about these charitable rating in, uh, institutions. They are guided by an effect, effective altruism approach. <laughs> effective altruism readily admits as one of their ten core tenants that they only seek to uh, uh, evaluate charities and other efforts on variables that are easy for them to measure. Okay, so cultural and social forces and how the grassroots is the impetus for moving those forces in the direction of justice, whether for animals or other human populations, is not something easy to measure. Therefore, the effective altruist approach does not take into consideration the complex social and cultural forces that really are the catalyst for change. They only look at the economic outcomes, for example, and these are valuable because like, let's say they, um, if they could find that, uh, let's say if we could find that Fairlife actually lost $200 million uh, after making a billion dollars and it had something to do or it could have been correlated with all this negative, uh, the litigations, the activism, the lawsuits, all that. Then we could say, hey, it looks like the movement's having an impact on on this industry in this particular case. But I'm not seeing these charity evaluator organizations um, looking at things like that. For instance, the Better Chicken Commitment, which is supposed to be um, a program that prevents the worst abuses to chickens in the chicken industry. Uh, there's no oversight. So the effective altruists say it's all about evidence and the number of chickens that you can get covered into this program. But there's no oversight. There's no. They're just taking the producer's word for it. And then they're taking the nonprofits that are participating in this program, taking their word for it by saying, oh, yeah, we got KFC and uh, uh, Purdue Farms and they're they're committing 12 million chickens. So they get paid based on the fact that they can claim, yes, we got 12 million chickens covered and effective altruists. The, the, this program is that's the only evidence they they feel is necessary and they pay out accordingly. So. And by their very own standards, evidence, solid evidence, they fail on that. Um, and by ignoring the all important social and cultural forces of change, they fail to look at one of the most important things about social movements and social change. Sorry, I know that was a bit long. No, <laughs> more than we wanted it's to hear. so important. I just want to say Sam Bankman Freed. Yeah. Here is an example of effective altruism. <laughs> and this guy is probably going to prison for a long time because of the fraud that he has allegedly committed. Right. You don't want to go along the lines of effective altruism. I think uh, people want to put their energies towards doing good. That should be the focus. This idea of making tons of money doing something so that you can give to an organization that's doing good things, it it doesn't work and it's not the best use of energy. No, I, I agree. And I, it's not to say that we shouldn't try to measure our progress. 
and that we shouldn't strive. But it's very difficult to 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 measure how culture and and social forces are going to change things. For example, like when Bernie Sanders ran in the primary against Hillary Clinton, no one predicted, none of those polls predicted that Bernie Sanders was going to win in 20 to 20 states, the primary. That was a big upset. There are big upsets and things that happen. There's George Floyd incidents, things that happen that change society, that are unpredictable. And we're not we're not giving credit to that effort, those efforts, when we look at just the economic uh, results of something and say, oh, uh, that's because of these better welfare standards and these organizations here. No, I mean, we're not looking at the big picture when we evaluate charities and we don't see these big trigger events. It's it's a sad uh, <laughs> thing. It's sad and I'm laughing because I can't do anything else. I want to add that I think a lot of people are feeling the darkness of our society and our world. Not that the world is any more darker than it's been in human history because we've been a violent species since the beginning. But I think we know more about things that are going on because of social media and access to news and the things that are being reported are the mm-hmm. darkest kinds of stories you don't hear about Robert Grillo and his group protesting at a care gala and telling the truth about fair life. You just don't hear those stories and you don't hear really lovely, positive stories about people doing wonderfully good things. So we're all inundated with all of this darkness. And I keep bringing back to the work that we do, Robert, and that is not only trying to expose what's going on, but also how do we live our own lives and how do we get the violence out of our own lives and how do we not support the violence that's going on around us? And to me, that comes back to the food that we eat, what's on our plate, the clothes that we wear. Let's let's get the violence out of our own lives. And that empowers us to a certain extent because a lot of people feel so hopeless. Oh, there's nothing I can do. So I'm just going to go on vacation. I'm just going to have a good time. I'm just going to go out to eat. But right. the things that we do and the money that we spend and the integrity that we have, I believe, yeah. makes a statement and makes a difference. Yeah, especially when we're kind of presenting ourselves to the public. And, you know, you're a public figure. You have a pod- more than one podcast. You you're a public figure and you perform you know as an actress and that is especially true for people that are more public figures because they're kind of role models in a way whether they believe it or not for themselves they are to other people and other people look at them as and and judge and you know how are they contributing to the good the public good or not and we all make mistakes. We're all going to mess up, but uh, we have a special responsibility to really um, conduct ourselves in a certain way. So, if we do a disruption, if we do something that's disruptive or confrontational or creating a moral crisis, so to speak, like you know Martin Luther King, like Junior, like to say, we do it in a dignified and nonviolent way. 
because when we cross that boundary into violence is when uh, we start losing, that erodes our, our standing and perception by the public. So it's a careful, fine line. The last question I have for you, because we're almost at the end of the hour, is do you have any more secret protests coming up? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, you can't talk about them if they're secret. But... <laughs> yeah, uh, that, that's a tricky question there, Karen. <laughs> I think you're just trying to trip me up. Yeah. <laughs> Always looking for an opportunity, right? Always. Yeah, always looking for opportunities. And some of them know that we're looking for those opportunities. Mm -hmm, sure. And they try to go to lengths, great lengths to shut you uh, down, prevent people from just like, you know how Trump, <laughs> good example is Trump. He'll pack a stadium or a, a room with supporters who will do whatever he asks them to do to show just how wonderful they are. Right. Unfortunately, Trump is not unique in this way. This is how public relations is created in the mm -hmm. corporate world. Yeah, he's just fill maximizing with, it. Yeah, fill the room with people that adore the CEO of Coca-Cola for whatever reason. Maybe they're paid or to do Or pay people to do that, yeah. right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Oh, dear. Robert, I want to wish you a wonderful Thanksgiving and all the holidays that are coming at the end of the year. I know that you are a great activist in that you do great work, but you also take time to rejuvenate, make sure that you take care of yourself. And that's such an important thing. So I respect that. And I just wish you all good. Oh, likewise. And I also care for my plants. Don't forget. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, and I have 12 people coming for Thanksgiving. Oh, my goodness. It's going to be a pot well, bringing stuff. Uh, so it's going to be a fun, I think, a fun Thanksgiving with a big group. Robert, so great to see you. Thank you so much for joining me. And it's all about food. Thank you, Karen. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. And that's another episode of It's All About Food. I sincerely appreciate you being there and listening. And for those of you who are making your choices about who you might want to support, whether it be Giving Tuesday or any day of the week, any time of the year, I hope you consider grassroots organizations doing so much with so little. And that includes Robert Grillo's Free From Harm, as well as our organization, Responsible Eating and Living, that produces this podcast. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving and have a delicious week.